1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, we are still in that portion of this chapter from verse 10 through 17. And before I read that text, let's ask for the Lord's enlightenment and blessing, and then I'll read from that scripture and open that up. Let's pray together. And now, blessed Father, we do come before you in the name of Christ, seeking enlightenment, understanding. Lord, we ask for eyes to see and ears to hear. We ask for open hearts to receive the truth. Lord, whether we are in need of correction or instruction, admonition, Lord, we do pray that you would train us in righteousness, that you would grow us up, that we would grow up in Christ together with our brothers and sisters as a body. Lord, instruct us now from this portion of your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin reading at verse 10. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete and in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each of you is saying, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, and I am of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that none of you would say you were baptized in my name. Now I did baptize also the house of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would be made void." And thus ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Uh, the church at Corinth is in a decline when Paul writes this letter. They are struggling. Um, many types of sin have infiltrated the church and the church is fragmented. It's divided and it's struggling and in struggling to the point that it needed to come before the apostle's attention so that he might address it, and that's the purpose of the letter, and that's what happened. Messengers went to Paul seeking help that Paul might correct the problems and the issues that the church is having, a tall task for sure. The church is a young church, barely five to six years old, and yet the kind of sins that, had, that it was already dealing with are, well, large sins. I mean, it would have been a tall task for a much older church to deal with this kind of or degree of schism and level of immorality and abuse of the preaching of the gospel, abuses of the sacrament of baptism and the sacrament of the supper. I mean, it was almost on every front Paul needed to help them and aid them and warn them and admonish them and uh, 
just beseech them to come to repentance that they might almost start afresh and new in their communion with Christ. My point and purpose this morning is that we might look at this text of Scripture once more and glean for ourselves how we might guard against the sin of schism among ourselves. We are certainly not above that sin. In fact, many churches, many churches are plagued with this sin of schism. As I confessed several Sundays back that when I begin thinking through all of the various congregations that I'm aware of and the various ministers that I have a relationship with, I, it was hard for me to find a church that at one time or another has not been touched by this grievous sin. And so I think it would help us this morning to take account of what Paul is saying to the Corinthians and then certainly begin to practice the graces needed in order to at least help buttress that sin. Now, let me say this. There is no guarantee and nothing is automatic. That is, we can't just say if we have the right doctrine, we're never going to be plagued with sin. If we just confess the right things, we'll never be tempted in anything or uh, any number of things by which we puff ourselves up by thinking if we do ABC, then we are going to automatically gain or glean the right results. It just doesn't work that way. I have seen the best churches fall to this sin. I have seen the best Christian homes have wayward children. I have seen terrible Christian homes produce godly children. And of course, it's not the homes itself, but again, there's just nothing automatic. This is not something that, that we can, this is not a program where we are putting in the right information and we're going to get the right result out of it. However, having said that, we are to practice righteousness, we are to walk in the truth, and we are to hold ardently to the revelation of God and to those graces that he has given the church so that we can be found faithful so that when we are tried and tempted by these sins that are knocking at the door, oftentimes we can be prepared to handle it because they are coming. They have come and they will come and they are coming and we have to prepare ourselves. Satan is always advancing and attacking and scheming and crafting lies and deceptions for the church. I believe it was Thomas Manton um, who wrote the introduction to the original Westminster Confession of Faith and he talked about the schemes and the wiles of the devil in, the, in his attack upon the church. And, of course, he's addressing it from the uh, degree or, or from the perspective of the family, the Christian home. And he talked about, though, the relentless attack that Satan has upon the Christian home. 
But that does translate often into the church. One of the sad statistics um, among evangelical churches is the degree in which they lose their young people. Oftentimes when they, and that, that comes from the churches that have the strongest of youth groups, so to speak. When these young people go off to college, they are often filled with unbridled restraint. They don't have a parent watching over them. They don't have someone there to guide them, someone to constrain them. And, and you find that when they get into that environment, they, they often lose control and, and, and well, find themselves in, well, sinful things. And they often fall away from the church. And we have to be mindful of that. That is a reality and we have to pastor and minister and pray for one another. We have to be aware of these things and, and we have to prepare our young people as best as we can for those temptations, for those, uh, those, those schemes and those wiles and those traps that is going to be laid out there in the world and, and by Satan in order to cause them to stumble in their faith. And then some find out they never had faith to begin with. And those are the ones that fall completely away. So it's important that we take seriously the sin of schism, that we might from this text begin to apply what I believe Paul is saying here to the Corinthian church, that we might use his admonition to certainly strengthen our own body against this prevalent sin. The verse that I want to focus on is verse 13 and following, but mainly verse 13. Notice these words that Paul admonishes them with. He says, has Christ been divided? Has Christ been divided? Now, what Paul is certainly bringing out here to the Corinthians is that Christ is not the head of many churches. They had divided themselves. They were in competition with one another. They were using one minister against another. And they were, well, glad that they were of one minister and not another and another of that minister and not another. And so they had pitted the good men against one another. Oh, the church does this frequently even today. But Paul's point is very clear. Christ is not divided. There is only one church. There is only one Lord. There is only one God and one Savior. And as Paul will go on to say, well, there's only one baptism. We would be wise to heed what Paul is teaching us here. To be schismatic is to divide the body. To be a schismatic is to insert some preference 
some idea or some teaching in such a way that it rents the body, it tears the body apart. It renders, it fractures it. That's what the word division means. It means to tear asunder. It means to tear apart as if you took a piece of paper or you took a cloth and you actually ripped it in half. That's the idea that's going on in the body. We have all of these fragments and it's unbecoming of the Christian church to be divided in that way. And that's why Paul calls them to be of the same mind and of the same speech, of the, of the same doctrine, if you will, of the same judgments. Why? Because we are under the same Lord. There is not many saviors. There are not many mediators between God and man. There is only one, and Christ is not divided. He certainly is addressing the idea of atonement, and I think this is important because it's not like Paul is saying, well, it's not like Christ atones for your sin and then turns you over to many other teachers, like he's no longer involved in your salvation. And yet some people live this way. I'm going to give you an example of what I'm talking about. It's like, oh, Christ loved me enough to save me, right, to atone for my sins, to die for me, and to wash me. But he really doesn't love me enough to give me that daily grace needed to live this life. He doesn't love me enough to really come and meet my, my earthly needs, if you will, and so I must go out in the world and find the answers. There are people that live like that. And they see the church as nothing more than sort of a, 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 a dispenser of salvation. And when I say salvation, it's not the broad, rich meaning that we ought to have as Christians because it's not just um, I have been saved, but I'm being saved and I will be saved. That's the biblical understanding of what this rich salvation is. But some people say, oh, yes, I've been saved, but now I just, well, I need to turn to this philosophy or, or this influence or, or, or this idea to, well, meet my daily family life's needs. And that's a, well, that's a, that's a great sin before God. And, and Paul is addressing it in that same. Is Christ divided? Does Christ care enough to die for you, but not enough to sanctify you? To take care of you? To fill your head with the truth needed and your heart with the will to do it? And to bring to bear all of these providential circumstances to grow you up in the Lord sanding and softening all of those rough edges in your life, curtailing your anger, smoothing out and taking away your bitterness, creating a greater love in your heart for your fellow man and for the means of grace and all of the just simple things that you've been given in Christ. That's a divine work. 
And Paul goes on, and he says, and this is the point he's making here. He's like, you know, did Paul die for you? Was Paul crucified for you? And it sort of gives us a, a, a look into the strength of some of the positions possibly of those at Corinth. I mean, I mean you act as if somehow these men that you've attached yourself to have died for you. That's, that's pitiful. That is a great sin. They are guilty of a great sin. This is schism. It's fracturing the body. It's tore it apart and it's created factions and quarrels among them and it will do so in any congregation where this happens. And Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? And Paul brings up this grace of baptism. And this is where we're going to spend our remaining time. I want to talk and I want to address this sacrament of baptism and grace of baptism. If you see in your bulletin, you'll see that the the message, the point of the message, or the where I want to take it is baptism, a sacrament, and grace against schism. And, and here's what I mean by the title. What I mean is Christ has gifted and, and provided for the church in such a way as to address these sins and to, to well, insulate ourselves from the damage of these sins. I'm not saying these sins aren't going to come. They are going to come. Why? Because we all struggle with sin. And to the degree we allow it to affect us and overtake us, we bring into the body. So I want to enlighten us on this doctrine of baptism. And I want to do it, I think, in two ways. That is, first of all, I want us to look, I want to address the nature of baptism first, the nature of baptism. But then I want us to look at the improvement of baptism. Why is this important? Why is this sacrament important and why is it such an insulation and, and a, a means to combat and to put down schism? Well, and that's what we're going to learn. Now, first of all, for some of you who may not know or may not have been taught or not grown up in a Reformed church per se, don't understand what a sacrament is. Why do we call baptism a sacrament? That's important. Well, the Latin word means a badge, a, 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 an emblem, if you will, something that is worn, something that is distinct. Baptism for the Christian does serve as a badge of the covenant of grace, of a, as a sign and seal of the covenant of grace. Now, it's invisible. I mean, it's not something you see after the fact. Right? We don't see, you know, the, the baptism on you when you 
after baptism, but what we will see as a badge, as a sacrament, we'll see a life that is in reflection of the reality of that baptism. And that's important. We will see the truth of that baptism, the reality of it, the spiritual working of that baptism inwardly reflected in how we live, how we walk with Christ, commune with Christ, how we learn from him, how we study the word, how we seek him, all of these things, how we worship him. Those, all of those, those activities are a reflection of how we are walking in the reality of your baptism. And it's clear once we learn of the nature and the improvement of baptism, what we're going to find is they had neglected this grace or at least certainly distorting it. They had neglected it. They are distorting it. And it has not produced righteousness and holiness. It's not even produced a, a, a common unity that it's designed to produce. Now, let's talk just briefly about the very, well, what it is and the nature of it. As I said, it is a sign and seal of the covenant of grace. Now, what is a sign? A sign is something that points to something. We have a sign out front of the church, Chalcedon Presbyterian Church. That sign is not the church. But that sign lets everybody know what this church is, who this church is. It points to this fellowship. This fellowship has designated itself as Chalcedon Presbyterian Church. Baptism does the same thing. It points to several realities, both, both should be outwardly and certainly spiritual, and that is, first of all, our union with Christ. Baptism is a sign and seal of our union in Christ. Let's look at Galatians 3. In Galatians chapter 3. Look at verses 26 and 27. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized in Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. That is, this baptism acts, if you will, as being united, clothed up, enclosed with Christ. It's a sign and seal of our union with Christ. It's commanded. Uh, we've looked at this passage of Scripture multiple times in Matthew 28 where Christ speaks of the authority granted to him by the Father over all that is in heaven and all that is on earth. And he tells the disciples who would be the apostles to do what? Go and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's a commandment. It's a commandment. 
It is not something arbitrary. It's not something made up by ministers. It's not like Paul and all the other disciples and elders got together in some church council and said, you know what would be good? Let's, let's baptize. Let's, let's, let's dip everybody in some water or let's sprinkle, let's put, let's pour water on people. And that would be a great way. That's a great ceremony. It'd be a tremendous experience. It'll just make everybody feel good about joining the church. They didn't do that. Christ instituted the sacrament of baptism, just like he did the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul says, that which I have received, I now give to you. Sacraments are those signs and seals those ordinances that are ordained of Christ for his church. Why? Because he's the head of the church. This makes baptism important. And that's why in the Reformed faith, it has always been part of our church ministry that baptism should not be put off any, any longer than it needs to be. It is something that needs to be done and done as soon as possible. When someone professes faith in Christ, particularly as an adult coming to salvation in Christ, they are to, well, be baptized and join the church and be incorporated, initiated into the fellowship of the church to represent their, their spiritual union with Christ as a sign. So it's important. Now, I will say this, I'm not planning to, to address this whole idea that's been so misconstrued as believer's baptism versus covenant baptism. Brothers and sisters, there's only one baptism. It is covenant baptism. People act as if Presbyterians or Reformed folk don't believe in believer's baptism. Well, of course we do. Acts is full of believers being baptized. But it doesn't stop there. We also recognize that God is not only the God of the parents, but as Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, that if there is one believing parent in 1 Corinthians 7, the children are also sanctified by that believing parent. And we are to bring our children to the Lord for their baptism as well. I can say more about that at lunch or any other time. That's not for this morning. There's a second reality of this sign and seals, not only our engrafting in Christ. Well, let me say this before we move on. Brothers and sisters, this engrafting into Christ, this union with Christ is perfectly set forth in baptism, how? Well, as Reformed people, we understand the differences between the Lord's Supper and baptism. The Lord's Supper sets forth the atonement of Christ. The Lord's Supper reminds us of his sacrifice of himself, his, his, his laying down his life. That's what we're reminded of. And we have communion with Christ in that suffering and in that passion. Well, baptism is a, a, a token of the work of the Spirit. 
It is the spirit of God that takes the atonement of God and makes application of it. It's the spirit of God that brings that atonement to reality in the heart of the sinner so that they feel the, the guilt and the weight of their sin, so that they see that the path of this, the, their eternal life is their confession of sin and faith in Christ. It's the Spirit who comes and washes the heart and regenerates the heart. Baptism is a sign and seal of the work of the Spirit in salvation, applying the work and the ministry of Christ to the believer. And you need to keep those two distinct you see in in John 15 or John 14 you'll see the promise that Christ tells his disciples I'm going away I'm going to paraphrase I'm going away you're not going to see me anymore but when I go away I'm going to send to you a paraclete what is a paraclete that's the Greek word he uses paraclete is someone like him i'm going to send you to paraclete the spirit and the spirit is going to teach you these things the spirit is going to lead you in these truths the spirit is going to be able to give you all that you need in order to to live the christian life and to perform the role of well disciple and apostle that I'm calling you to. And then when we get to John 15, what do we have? We have the, the picture of the vine and branches. This is a picture of unity. This is what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit comes mystically into our lives and unites us to Christ. Now, why do I say mystically? Well, you don't see it. It's not something that we can visibly see with our eyes, can we? There's nothing in you, there's nothing about you, there's nothing about me that you can look at and say, oh, I, I see that you are united to Christ. I see that. No, we don't do that. Well, how do we know? Well, what John goes on to tell us in this where he talks about where Jesus tells us that he's the vine, right? We are the branches. We are incorporated into him. What does that mean? How do we know this? Well, he goes on, read these, read these verses, and he says, if you abide in me, you abide in my word. To abide in my word is to abide in me. How do you know you have union with Christ? Are you abiding in his word? Do you delight in his word? Do you want to know the word? Are you walking in the light of the word? Do you want to know the truth? Do you want to be corrected? Do you want to be admonished if necessary? Do you want to be chastened by the hand of a father and not judged by, well, a sovereign, king? You want to be dealt with as a child, as a son, as a daughter. Well, that's what Jesus is saying. You, you, look, if you love me, you'll obey me. If you, how do I know, Lord, I'm abiding in you? How do I know as a branch I've been engrafted by the Spirit into Christ? Are you walking in his word? 
And we can see that the church at Corinth was, was struggling to walk in the word of God and the truth and the reality of God. They were, they were torn apart. They were, they were guilty of schism. They were fighting among themselves. That's not what the body of Christ should be. Look at Titus chapter 3, verse 5. Look at Titus chapter 3, verse 5. He says, and Paul writes, he says, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. Now notice this. By the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Lord. So that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. What is Paul saying here? Paul is saying that our hope is not even in our works of righteousness. It's not even in those things that you do after faith. Our hope is the union that the Holy Spirit has produced between us and Christ, that the Spirit of God has come into our hearts and washed us from our sins and regenerated our hearts and united us to Jesus. That's the hope we have. It's God who has saved and who is saving. And that's why baptism is a death nail to schism. These are some of the reasons why we ought to do what as a body? We ought to remember the fundamental doctrine of baptism when we go struggling with schism, arguing with one another. And how that schism is not a, a, a reality, it's not a sign of the reality of the Holy Spirit in our lives. No, the Holy Spirit is producing what? The same thing in me as he is in you. That Washing and regeneration and that union is the same thing in all who call upon the name of God. Look at Ephesians 5, verse 26. This idea, I will point out just for the sake of of the mode of, of this washing. Notice what did Paul say in, in Titus? He said the Holy Spirit was poured out upon us. What is the proper mode that reflects the giving of the Holy Spirit? Immersion or pouring? Pouring. We don't see anywhere in the scriptures where the person is added to the spirit. We don't find that, do we? This is why baptism is a sign and seal of the work of the spirit in us for the sake of salvation. What do we find? We find the spirit being applied to the person, being poured out, being given coming upon those sorts of things. And that's why, beloved, we have committed ourselves in the tradition of the Reformed faith to pouring in baptism. 
because we believe that it is the proper picture of the Holy Spirit coming into the life of the sinner. Look at Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5 and verse 26. Now, Paul is using the role between a husband and a wife to teach a, a, a very important truth of the, of the church. And he says in verse 26 that he might, right, that is Christ. He's not talking about the husband. He says that he might sanctify her. That is set her apart. That the, he's talking about the bride. The bride is the her. That's us. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. This is another reality that we need to keep in mind, that when we talk about the role in the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we are never to divorce it or take it away from the Word of God as the agent of the Spirit. That is, the Spirit is coming into the minds and the hearts of God's people. How? Through the agency, primarily and ordinarily, of the Word of God. And that's why the word of God has a saving effect upon some and not others. The word of God goes out. You know, there are people that study the word of God for poetry. There are people that study the word of God for history. Archaeologists study the word of God. They find it to be a, a great map of the Middle Eastern uh, region over there and finding these ancient cities uh, that, well, that we don't know or that it have existed, but so much of the world scholarship has said even for decades, hundreds years ago, that the Hevites never existed. They never were a people. It's a myth. The Bible mentions them. Guess what? They found them. So the, the, the Bible does serve that in that capacity, no doubt. But brothers and sisters... When it comes to saving understanding, that is, people can study Jesus like they study any philosopher, right? As a moral teacher, they can study the teachings of Jesus, and they can determine that Jesus was a good teacher. They can determine that Jesus was a powerful teacher, that Jesus was a popular teacher. I, I hear quite often, well, they wanted, you know, that is in political circles, People will say, well, you know, Jesus was a rebel. You know, Jesus was a rebel, meaning we, we ought to be rebels. Meaning that if the church has a problem with people professing G to know Christ and not incorporating themselves into the body of Christ and being members of the church and using their gifts and talents to grow and thrive and serve one another, they say, oh, man, I'm a rebel. I'm like Jesus. Jesus was against the establishment. Well, that's, that, that's the conclusions they come to. They read into all of this what they want to see, right, what they want to hear. But, but again, Jesus is a rock of stumbling to those who are perishing. He is precious. He is precious to those who are saved. 
It's a difference. Where does that difference come from? It comes from that regenerating work of the Holy Spirit washing away our sins that's reflected in physical baptism. That we would be washed. That we would have his badge of washing put upon us. That we would denounce our allegiance to this world and now give Christ our loyalty and our allegiance that we would now abide in him and his word and divorce ourselves off the philosophies of this world. We are brought into a new family. Go back, you can go back to Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 and 27. How do we become sons and daughters of God? Through the agency of the Holy Spirit. And Paul says in Corinthians that They are the stewards of these mysteries, baptism being one of those mysteries, Lord's Supper being one of those mysteries. It's not just an initiation into a club. You know, when we join a church, we if you join Chalcedon Presbyterian or any evangelical reformed church, you're going to find you are you come and you take vows and you're baptized and in those vows what are you doing you are denouncing the world you are denouncing the flesh you are denouncing satan and now you are saying i am a new child of god i've been washed i've been made clean i've been brought into a right relationship with god his wrath has been removed from me and i will walk by faith before his presence. It's a sign and seal of the hope of the future. Beloved, look at Romans chapter 6. Or look at 1 Corinthians. Well, 1 Corinthians, uh, look at Romans 6. Let's go there. Romans 6. In Romans 6, It cannot be underestimated how Paul begins this chapter when he says in verse 1, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Now that's that's the foundation of the rest of the chapter. Because Paul knows that when you teach salvation by grace alone, People are going to take that and they're going to go, well, then I can, I've been washed. I've been made clean. I've got a relationship with Jesus. I can live any way I want to now. I've got salvation. He knows this. And Paul wants to correct it. And so Paul says, well, then what, what are we to say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? And of course he says, God forbid, But now look at verse 3. He says, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Now he's talking about it. This is a dry baptism here. Dry baptism. This is the union we have been brought into by the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has united us to Christ. And notice what aspect Paul is bringing out here. We are baptized into his what? Death. What does we mean? How is he going to use that going forward? Well, look at it. He says, therefore, we've been buried with him through baptism into death 
so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. Just as Christ died to sin, we're to die to sin. That's what baptism means. Your baptism means, beloved, as a spiritual sign and seal of the covenant of grace, what you were saying in baptism and what it is to mean is that just as Christ died to sin on the cross, you too have died to the old way of life. And now you have been made new in the walk in the newness of life. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, when he talks about this list of sins and are these list of sinful things, he says, as were some of you, but you were washed and made clean and made new. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. Notice what he goes on to say in verse 5. For if we have become united with Christ, now notice the word united, synonymous with this baptism. He says, if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Now, That's the, sort of, in a nutshell, the nature of baptism. Some of you remember your baptism. I wasn't a young adult when I was baptized. Some of you don't remember your baptism. That's not necessary. That, that's not needed. Your memory of your baptism is not necessary for this reality to be effectual because God made that decision for you. How did God make that decision for you, for those of you young people that were baptized as infants in the church of Christ? He made that decision for you by putting you providentially in a Christian family and giving the Christian family the commandment to bring their children to the Lord. So don't agonize young people over the memory of your baptism. Agonize abiding in Christ. Agonize over walking before Christ. Agonize over being a child of God and bringing to reality what that baptism sign and signifies of a, a, a whether outwardly or inwardly in your life. Now that brings us to the second point. The improvement of baptism. Now, I hope you can see how the Corinthian church has just destroyed the doctrine of baptism by their schism. They're acting as if this baptism has not united them to one Lord. That there's not been one spirit washed their hearts. That they, that they are, you, one's united to Christ, the other one's united to Paul, the other one's united to Apollos, one Cephas, and all of the, No, there's one Savior, the one washing of the Holy Spirit. There's one union of the Holy Spirit. We all are united spiritually in Christ. That's the reality. That's the reality. One Lord, one Savior, one baptism, one church. 
And it always comes up, says, what about all these denominations? I'm going to spend 30 seconds. Where these denominations may, all these Christian denominations may seem unchristian to many. I find it necessary in our fallen world. I'm for denominations. Why? Because we have to perform the work of the ministry. Now, I'm not talking about heresy. I'm not talking about cults. I'm not talking about sectarians. I'm talking about Christian denominations. I'm talking about those who are seeking to be faithful to Christ as they understand the scriptures and walk in the newness of life, united to Christ, carrying out the word of God as they understand it. That's what I'm talking about. And that's why we should and have and will have denominations until Jesus comes back because we need to labor faithfully before the Lord. And we don't need to sit around and bicker and argue over the minutia or applications of the Christian faith. We need to get on with the ministry of the preaching of the gospel, the calling of God's elect, and the building up of the body, and the sanctifying and the growing up of Christ's church. And that's why I'm against some of these young people who love to go into these differing congregations, whether it's a, whether it's a Presbyterian, want to go over to a Baptist church, and the first thing they want to do is argue about baptism. I'm against that. Why would you do that? Even though I'm absolutely opposed to that mode of baptism. But why would you do that? You don't get invited into someone else's house and just make yourself at home and start arguing. You know what they believe. Don't go over there if you don't believe it. And it's the same way when Baptists want to come over into a Presbyterian church and they one of the first things they want to do is start an argument over baptism. I don't mind arguing if they're teachable. If not, don't come over here arguing that. Why? Because we have better things to do. Okay? So that's enough of that. So let's talk about the application of this baptism. Put it in its context of, of what it is when we are baptized and we are brought into the church and how we're going to well, how we're going to certainly take on this temptation of schism or, or combat schism that may be already here in some of our hearts and our minds. Well, first of all, remember the nature of baptism. But second of all, let's address the repentance and humility that baptism continues to produce in our life. Listen, if we are going to remember our baptism, if we're going to remember that it's the work of Christ being applied to us and that we've been washed by the Spirit of God, that we are being carried forth by the Spirit of God, that it's the, excuse me, it's the Spirit of God that's produced faith in us, activating faith so that we might exercise it. It's the Spirit of God that's activated repentance in our life so that we might confess our sins. It's the Spirit of God that continues to sanctify us and set us apart from this world. Then, beloved, how in the world can you be anything but humble? How can you be anything but humble, beloved, when salvation is all of God and none of you? Humility. Humility is requisite for repentance, continued repentance. The Lord doesn't want to hear your arrogant prayers of repentance. Lord, 
I slipped up today. You know, it was an accident. Um, I wouldn't have sinned if it hadn't been for this person in my life. Or if we had better preaching, or if we had better fellowship, or I'd be a stronger Christian. That's the prayers of, of arrogance. When the Holy Spirit came and washed away your sins, what do you think he washed away? Don't you think schism was part of that? Arrogance, schism, hatred, bitterness, jealousy. He washed that away. So we're to live in the newness of that newfound spiritual humility before God because, listen, without the washing of the Spirit, I would be jealous, I'd be angry, I'd be bitter, I'd be schismatic. Oh, it might be subtle. It might be what they call in psychology passive-aggressive. Now, in Christians, we call that manipulation. Psychology calls it passive-aggressive. We call it manipulation. But it's the same thing. It, beloved, remembering, remembering Romans 6, verse 5, remembering these things, walking in this newness of life, realizing that it's the Spirit of God that's united us to Jesus. Turn to 1 Corinthians 11. at verses 11 and 13 or 11 through 13 however Paul says in the Lord neither is a woman independent of man nor is a man independent of a woman for as the woman originates from the man so also the man has his birth through the woman and all things originate from God judge for yourselves it is proper for a woman to pray with her head uncovered. He's talking about this union. He's talking about this headship. What is baptism? What, what's the reality of baptism? When we are baptized and we bring ourselves out of the world, we divorce ourselves out of that family, we are incorporated into the family of God. Guess what? We have a new head. It's Jesus. It's not Apollos. It's not Paul. It's not Cephas. It's Jesus. We are to draw upon that strength of the reality of our baptism. Remember these things, beloved. They are not naked and naked truths. They are truths that bear a spiritual reality that the Holy Spirit is working in your life. He's bringing to bear what that sign and seal is into your life so that it's a reality. You know, I tell people, when you want to sit down and you want to look at your life, don't look at the last 10 minutes. Don't look at the last week. Look over the last decade. Now, some of you are barely that old. Look over the last decade and see where the Lord's brought you. There's your encouragement. 
That's the reality of God's love on you. That's the reality of being washed. That's the reality of being united. Look over a, a, a span of your life and see how the Lord has guided you, protected you, taught you, instructed you, chastened you, and loved you. Think about the faith that you have. It's not just something that you you say with your mouth. It's something you live out in your life. It's a living faith. That's what baptism symbolizes. That's, That's why we are to improve our baptism. We have a whole catechism question in our standards, right, helping us to understand how does one improve their baptism, because we're commanded to do so. What does it mean to improve your baptism? Let me address that. What it means is that I am going to live out my everyday life in the reality that I now belong to Jesus. That's what it means. I am going to live in the reality that I am no longer a son and daughter of this world. I have been brought to Jesus. I have put my faith and trust in him. He has washed me from my sins. He has incorporated me into his body, into his life. All of those spiritual things that the benefits of Christ are applied to me by the Holy Spirit, and I am going to walk every day in that reality and truth. I'm going to make it real in my life. That's what it means. So, well, pastor, I don't feel like it. It doesn't matter what you feel like. Your union with Christ isn't based upon your feelings. It's based upon the work of the Spirit. It's based upon God's love for you. It's ba- look, now if you look at your life, you look, if you look over the past 10 years and you, you don't see repentance, you don't see a walk in faith, you don't see a, a life striving to please God, well, brothers and sisters, then you've not been united to Christ. And I'm not laughing about it. I'm telling you to hold harsh. The harsh reality is you don't belong to the Lord Jesus, and I would call you this morning to come to him. I would call you this morning, that is the Holy Spirit, using this message this morning about physical baptism and spiritual baptism to bring you to Christ. So that you desire for that inward reality to be true in your heart and mind. That you can now, I want to live for Jesus. Beloved, abide in his word. Abide in his word. If you abide in me, Jesus said, John 15, then abide in my word. If my word abides in you, then you abide in me. One of the, 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 one of the realities that you need to look for in your life is do you love the Word of God? Do you love it? Desire it? Is it sweet? Even when it corrects you, it's sweet correction. Even when it humbles you, it's sweet humility. Even when it admonishes, it is the hand of a father. Beloved, abide in the word and you are abiding in Christ, faith and repentance. Well, they had just completely 
obliterated their love and unity with one another, which is, again, beloved. What does it mean to be incorporated into the body of Christ? This is the last point we'll make about this baptism. When we are baptized and initiated into the church by this baptism, we are joining one another, too. We are members of one another. Paul goes on to, to teach us in the book of Corinthians, right, that we are members of one another. We're parts and pieces of the same body. But schism breaks all of that. Schism destroys the reality and meaning of Christian baptism, beloved. And one of the things we can do to combat schism from coming in and overtaking us as a church is to walk in the improvement of our baptism and to remember that reality, the truth it teaches, so that we walk humbly and well before the Lord every day in humility and repentance, drawing strength from that remembrance of that baptism, drawing strength from the promises of God that I will wash you. Listen, last Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36, this is is our closing passage. Verse 22, therefore I say to the house of Israel, prophet, thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. I will vindicate my holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their their midst. And then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. And then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Beloved, listen to these words, these promises. Draw strength from the biblical promises of God to you to walk in holiness. You say, oh, I can't. Yes, you can. God not only saved you, he is saving you. He is saving you today. Even in this providential uh, situation this morning in in this worship services with all the brothers and sisters, that the word of God is falling upon your ears and your heart that you might now remember and reflect upon, oh, my baptism and what a grace and how it has impacted me with its nature, the reality, its truth, and how it stimulates me to live the rest of this day and tomorrow and the next day in the reality that I have been washed from my sins and I'm a new creation in Christ. God forbid that I would be schismatic in the church of Christ. God forbid that I'd be used by my sins, by my lust, by the world, by Satan to come in and to rip the church apart. God have mercy upon anybody that is guilty of such a great sin. 
brothers and sisters, remember and improve your baptism and we will combat this sin of schism. Let's pray. And Father in heaven, we delight in your word. We delight, O oh Lord, to do your will. But we are weak and we are fragile. And Lord, we, we have many hindrances. And we ask that you would come and wash us and make us clean and empower us and, and move us, O oh God, to, to do your will, to perform it in faith and, and in continued repentance of sin. Oh, Lord, that we might walk in delight of this truth and reality, that it would be an encouragement to us, a strength to us. And we will remember that not only uh, that we have been united uh, in you through baptism of the Spirit, but, Lord, our brothers and sisters have too. That they are just as united as one another, as anyone else. And, Lord, Lord let us live in such a, a way that fosters unity and peace and purity of the church. And we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.